0: Oh
1: Swagadam, Swisswagadam. Welcoming the guest is an important tradition of Indian culture. I request Tiradi Lakshmi Narana Swami Avargal, joint managing trustee of SNA Sun's Trust, to deliver the welcome address.
2: Respected uh, Mr. Amish Tripathi, Mr. Pramod Kumar, Swati Rohat, dear friends and dear students, a warm welcome to all of you today morning here, and I'm glad I'm here amidst you all this morning at this unique uh, function. If we can take this uh, liberty, I'll call you Amish as you would like it, uh, and I can you put it in your books. His books basically are all on religious topics. He believes that religiosity and liberalism go hand in hand in India. His books always reflect a liberal, progressive ideology, be it about discrimination, or caste, or even gender. Mind you, his books are all based on solid research. Now his latest, maybe the first non-fiction book I understand is Immortal India. His books have become extremely popular in these days because he blends Indian philosophy into an understanding of religion and history. He also has a very interesting take on today's education system, that the system separates Quantitative subjects from humanities. I completely and totally agree with you, and I hope, in the years to come, the educationists of this country take a cue from this and get the two blended together. Recently, in an interview, also quoted that, I'll quote: "I'm driven by Indian history, the strong culture, the historical backdrop it flaunts is a matter of pride for me." My love for the country is non-negotiable. We need a great word from you, sir. Right. India, a culture that has witnessed the dawn of civilization. We witnessed the rise of other cultures and also wants them turn to dust. It has been celebrated and attacked, admired and vilified at all at the same time. But the soul of this great nation remains immortal. We at Asnar institutions are glad and privileged to have you here and address the youth here. I fervently hope and believe your presence and your talk will give a new way of thinking to the young and see India, its philosophy, and its greatness in a very new light. Thank you and welcome you all to the function. Thank you.
1: Thank you, sir. I now call upon Mrs. Swati Rohit, Chief Business Officer of SNR Suns Trust to introdu- introduce the chief guest.
3: Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for making it out here on a Tuesday. And uh, I'm, pre- I'm very sure Amishji is going to make it worth a while completely. Uh, Amishji, thank you so much for making the time to address us today. Uh, there are several budding young-in-age and young-at-heart writers here who are eagerly awaiting to hear from you. Amish Amishji is a graduate of IIM Calcutta and worked for 14 years in the financial services industry before turning to full-time writing. He lives in Mumbai with his wife, uh, Preeti, and son, Neil. Amishji has authored six books, The Immortals of Meluha, The Secret of the Nagas, The Oath of the Vayu Putras, um, which comprise the Shiva trilogy and the Scion of Ikshavaku, Sita, Warrior of Mithila, Immortal India, Young Country, Timeless Civilization. He has sold four million copies in print. His books have been translated into 19 Indian and international languages. The Shiva trilogy is the fastest selling book series in Indian publishing history. Uh, Scion of Ikshavaku was the highest selling book of 2015. Sita, Warrior of Mithila, the second book of the Ramachandra series, has been the highest selling book since its launch in May 2017. Immortal India, Young Country, Timeless Civilization, Amishji's first non non-fiction book, has been on the best selling chart since its launch in August 2017. The Indian language translation of Amishji's books have sold 5 lakh copies, breaking records in this space. He's also the recipient of the Raymond Crossword Book Award, Dainik Bhaskar Literature Award, Society Young Achievers Award for Literature, Man of the Year by Radio City, Communicator of the Year by PR Council of India, and the Pride of India Literature Award. <laughs> Forbes magazine has listed Amishji amongst the 100 most influential celebrities in India. And GQ has listed him as the 50 most influential among young Indians. Uh, he's also selected as an Eisenhower Fellow, a prestigious American program for outstanding leaders from around the world. He's. He's been described as India's first literary pop star. So without any further delay, I'd like to invite uh, Amish Ji. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Uh, may I now request our joint managing trustee, Tiro D. Lakshmi Swami Avagal to adorn Amish Ji with a shawl. Today is definitely a day to be marked with golden letters in the history of SNR Sense Trust and Indic Book Club Coimbatore Hope we also remain in your memory and we take pleasure to present our, uh, a token of our love. And I request Mrs. Swati Rohit, uh, Chief Business Officer of SNR Sense Trust to present a memento to Amish Ji.
4: Sorry, I'm not a very formal guy, so I don't like to stand at the podium, I like to walk around. Uh, so if you don't mind, it'll be a little difficult for the camera person, sorry. <laughs> so uh, thank you, thank you so much for coming here and I guess some of you have uh, missed school because of this, so my apologies to all, all the teachers who've come here, uh, that your students are not at school uh, and I'll hopefully try and make up for this out here. So, the subject I am supposed to speak of is, why is India immortal? What is it in this great land of ours, that we have survived for so long? You know, there is this lovely Urdu uh, share that was written, and that I have quoted in my book, that, Yunano, Misro, Roma, sab mit gaye jahaan se, ab tak magar hai baaki namo nisha hamara, kuch baat hai ki hasti mitti nahi hamari. Sadi ho raha hai dushman zama I'll translate this. What it means is that the Greeks, you guys have all heard of the Greek civilization? Roman civilization? Yeah, mysteries, Egypt, Egyptian civilization. Are they alive today? Are they alive today? No, right? They are museum pieces, they are dead. So, the, the poem says that these great civilizations are long gone, But we are still here. Enemies have attacked us for centuries. There's something special in us that we stubbornly refuse to die. There's something special in this country of ours that we stubbornly refuse to die. But when we say India doesn't die, what does it mean? What is India? What is India? Anyone wants to answer what is India? You can just scream your answer out. the land our heritage what is what is india what makes up this country our motherland our people religion but many religions are practiced here what makes up india culture culture who said that very good answer but someone said heritage out here as well different word okay anyone else what makes up india myths Yes? You know, all these answers are in a way right, okay? Because what makes up this country is actually our belief that this is a country, our belief that this land is special. And what is our belief? What is it that most of us, uh, that convinces most of us that we are civilization? It's our myths, it's our stories. There's a beautiful line that I'd read somewhere, that the universe is not made up of atoms, it's actually made up of stories. And when you believe in stories, stories that have come down from centuries, from millennia, it's a shared imagination. If all of us believe in those stories, we become a country, we become a culture, we become a nation. Like if you go, why is Greece, why is ancient Greece not alive today? From the thing that I've said, if you want to think about it, thoda uh, hot hai. may Why is why is Greece not a civilization today? It's it's ancient civilization. It's practically a different civilization now. They stop believing their myths. Wonderful answer. Applause for you, sir. If you go to Greece today, anyone knows what is the... what is the name of their chief god? Zeus? Who said that? Very nice, applause for her. Zeus was the name of their chief god. But if you go to Greece today, nobody believes in Zeus anymore. It's a nice story, but nobody believes in Zeus anymore. If you go to Egypt today, do they believe in Amun Ra? Do they believe that those stories were real? No, right? It's just a story. Doesn't mean anything to them. It's when you stop believing in your stories that your culture dies. The pyramids are still there, right? The Egyptians, the pyramids, many of the pyramids, you'll notice at the front of the pyramids, it was the name of Amun Ra would be written in many of the pyramids. But does that mean The architecture is there. But is the civilization alive? No, it's not alive because they don't believe in that story anymore. But in India, if you go around India, regardless of the religion you practice, regardless of the language you speak, uh, regardless of the so-called caste you are from, regardless of the state that you are from, if you ask people, do you believe in the story of Lord Ram, what will people say? Yes. Do you believe in the story of Lord Shiva? Yes? That's what keeps our civilization alive. Our belief in our stories. So, how do stories remain alive? How come Indian stories have remained alive, but the Greek stories have died out, the Egyptian stories have died out, the Mesopotamian stories have died out, Central American stories have died out, Chinese stories have remained alive till today. China is another culture where the stories and culture have remained alive. So why have our stories remained alive? Why have other stories died out? Sorry, one by one. Okay, good point. So we are God-fearing, so we kept… we kept transmitting the stories. Were the Greeks any less God fearing? Were the Egyptians any less God fearing? Why did they stop? That's a question. They stopped believing. They stopped believing. He's raised a good point. They stopped believing. Why did they stop believing? Sorry? In India also we've had, correct? In Vedic times we used to, many of us, if you go to Southeast Asia, you know, many of our ancient gods who are not worshipped here anymore are actually worshipped in Southeast Asia. They still, they'll still worship uh, Lord Kubera, for example, who we don't worship in large, that big numbers in India anymore. Correct? So, we've also changed. And in fact, India is more like a banyan tree, right? That there are, you'll find so many uh, Indians in close to Jaipur, there's a tomb of a Sufi, uh, you know, Muslim saint called the uh, Ajmer Sharif. I don't know how many of you, any of you visited there? Uh, we are Hindus, but my wife and I, anyway in Jaipur, we visit there. We have faith in it, correct? There are Muslims out there, uh, Muslims in Mumbai, who are idol makers of Lord Ganesh in the Ganesh Chaturthi festival. And many of them have a tradition that they will worship the idol first, before selling it to their Hindu customers. They are Muslims. But they have this tradition. In Rajasthan, there is a tribe called the Manganiyar Muslims. They are Muslims. But the vocation that they have is they sing devotional ballads to Lord Ram. So, we have also changed, often, different beliefs. But we continue to believe the old stories as well. Why is that?
5: They are partaking in Krishna's birthday celebration. Correct? So ours is more participative rather than you know uh, uh, addressing a story. In fact, we take it as if it is our festival our life.
4: You You are Sir, I think you are onto it. And this is a thought that I want to leave with you. Our core strength, why we have remained alive, (laughs) is this that we We keep the best of the old, even when we add in something of the new. It's not that we have to destroy the old to add in something of the new, that's the beauty of our culture. So, uh, you can change your beliefs a little bit, but you will still continue to follow the stories of old. It's not that forget all the old stories, destroy them and start afresh. We don't think that way. How are we able to do this? how come the greeks and the egyptians were not able to do this that i am starting a new story but i don't have to forget the old stories how are we able to do this uh,
5: our society
4: correct shruti shruti is that which you've heard texts like the vedas Upanishads, smriti is that which you remember so correct and which are all changeable but one of the things that you realize in the Smritis and the Shrutis, and that really is at the heart of our way of life, is the marriage between liberalism and religiosity. What does that allow us to do? It allows us to adapt our stories when times change. And that to me, is the real heart of our strength. Because times changed in Greece, around the early first millennium AD, But the stories of their old gods did not change, did not adapt. Times changed in uh, Central America, around uh, mid-second millennium. Times changed because it happens, as as Lord Krishna told us, change is the only constant. Change will keep happening. But their stories did not adapt. Let me give you an example of how our stories adapt. I know I am in South India, I am in Tamil Nadu. So, I know what the answer will be, but I still want you to answer me. Who's elder? Lord Ganesh or Lord Karthik? Lord Ganesh. Ganesh. Everyone says Lord Ganesh. Anyone says Lord Karthik out here? Any North Indian out here? Lord Karthik? In North India, we believe Lord Karthik is elder. Okay. Is Lord Karthik a bachelor, or is he married? 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 Everyone agrees? Of course, no? Valli ji and Sena ji. Correct. Anyone says he is not married. Anyone says he is a bachelor. In North India, we believe he is a bachelor. Okay. How did I discover this? I'm a North Indian. I'm from UP, but I studied in Tamil Nadu. Okay. I I studied close to Coimbatore actually. Lawrence School, Uti, and this was in the yeah. Applause for Uti. (laughs) In fact. In fact, I had learnt a bit of Tamil also in those days. I, I still remember a little bit. I remember the numbers. Nobody prompted me. renda mona nala anja Ara, eera atta umbada pada. Correct? So, when I would come out here, I heard this story. And I come from a very religious family. My grandfather was a Pandit in Banaras and both my parents are also very religious. So, when, when I went back home, I said, Hare, but what is this?'' Out here Lord Karthik has two wives. You told me he's a bachelor. I was in the fourth standard, okay, at that time. But you told me he's a bachelor. What is this? And because in the north, the belief in him being a bachelor so much that women don't even enter his temples. Okay, in the north. Lord Karthik uh, temple. But out here women enter, right? Lord Karthik temple. So what my mother said, and again this remained with me from that age, She said that's the beauty of India. Ekam Sat vipra bahuda vadanti. Truth is one, the wise men speak it as many. There's a line in the Rig Veda. Ekam… Rig Veda is our… <coughs> excuse me. Our oldest scriptures, the Rig Veda, right? So there's a line in there, ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti. Truth is one, but the wise men speak it as many. Said so then everyone has a right to their truth. You respect their truth, they will respect your truth. So you know what my mother does? When she's in the north, She doesn't enter the Lord Karthik temple. When she comes to Tamil Nadu, she enters the Lord Karthik temple. She prays out there. This is the Indian way. Comfort with multiple truths. What it allows us to do, we adapt our stories. We adapt our stories as times change. And therefore we make them relevant once again. That's why our stories don't die. Times change, right? Today we are in a different time compared to what the time was 200 years ago. Correct? two hundred, three hundred years ago, you know, because India had suffered a lot of violence, many of the stories that were coming out showed women in a slightly… you know, any society which suffers a lot of violence tends to become patriarchal. It's… you notice across the world. It tends to become that way. So, many of the stories that came out in those times started showing uh, a a more patriarchal uh, society. You know, women slightly… at a slightly inferior status compared to men. But if you see our ancient stories, our ancient versions of the same stories, men and women were equal. Our oldest scripture is the Rigveda, right? Yeah? There are hymns in the Rigveda that have been written by Rishikas, by women Rishis. Okay, so we had the equivalent of women prophets and women messiahs in ancient India. Yeah. All the women and the men should applaud for this. This was. Because in those days, men and women were equal. For a few centuries, we suffered a lot of violence, so society became patriarchal. But now, we've had peace for 70, 80 years. We should come up with equal stories once again. Correct? And the beauty of the Indian way is, you can adapt the story a little bit, it's okay, people will accept it. Because in our way, multiple truths, we are comfortable with it. And this to me is the secret of why we have survived that we are comfortable with multiple truths, we can adapt to changing times. If you are so rigid that you can't adapt at all, like a tree, when a, when a hurricane comes, a tree which doesn't bend a little bit, what'll happen to that tree? What'll happen? Massive hurricane comes but the tree is very rigid, what'll happen? It'll break, it'll fall down, correct? But you also have, I don't know if you have in Tamil Nadu, in the north you have this very tall grass, kosher grass, which goes up like five, six feet. But it's grass, so it's not… Does it have any strength at all? It's so flexible that it has no strength, it has no existence only. So if you're so rigid that you can't adapt to changing times, you will break. If you're so flexible that actually you have no culture of your own, then you don't exist. You have to find that ideal balance. Where you're strong enough, to have a culture of your own, but flexible enough to change when times change. And to me, this is the secret of our longevity. The fact that we are able to adapt but still keep the heart, still keep the soul of our ancient culture. This is the reason we've survived. That's a thought I want to leave with all of you. That's the secret of why India is immortal. And I'll leave you with a thought, because we are comfortable with multiple truths. Because we're able to adapt, we're able to find commonalities with each other. And this is the last thought I want to leave with you. I was in Kerala recently in Trisur. I'd gone for a program out there. And there's a wonderful temple out there called Vadakkunnathan Temple. Anyone has visited that temple, Vadakunnatan? It's close by. I'm sure many of you have gone. Beautiful temple. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a it's a very ancient temple, perhaps fifteen hundred, two thousand years old. And it's a lovely temple, there's a Lord Shiva temple on one side, Lord Vishnu on the other side and a Harihar temple in the middle, it's so beautiful. So I had gone out there and uh, you know, my books have come out in Malayalam as well. So uh, I had gone anonymously, I would not really… so I would just gone to pray out there with a Mathra person who had gone. And there happened to be someone out there who'd read my Malayalam book, uh, who recognized me and wanted to come and speak to me. Now, he was speaking only Malayalam, I was speaking only English and Hindi. Okay? We couldn't really communicate with each other. In a few broken words, you know, we managed to communicate. Technically, you'd think we'd have nothing in common, right? And then the Aarti of Lord Shiva started. And it's… It was, it's such a beautiful Aarti out there. I got very emotional. So did he. And we were standing next to each other, We were crying through that aarti and we were one people. And to me, that again shows the beauty of India. The languages can be different because we believe in a common ancient culture. It makes us strong. It makes our country survive. It makes our country immortal. That's a thought I want to leave with you. I've been told to leave enough time for question answers. So if there's a mic that can go around, I'll be very happy to answer uh, questions that you have. And please give some chance to the backbenchers also. I was always a backbencher. In so, anyone has a question, please go ahead. Please raise your hand and ask a question. Yes, sir. So, is there a mic that can? Okay. So, I just just scream your answer. Welcome, Namaskaram. Thank you. Okay, good question. The question he's asked me is that I was always seen as a fiction writer as. Please sit, sit, sit. Yeah, don't be formal. Uh, That I was always seen as a as a fiction writer, as a story, as a writer of uh, mythological stories. So why non-fiction? See, for me, my uh, my fictional stories always began with a uh, pure philosophy concept. So everyone's read the Shiva trilogy out here. Anyone who hasn't read? The the books are available, do do read. So the core philosophy at the heart of the Shiva trilogy is an answer to this question, what is evil? Or more specifically, what is dharma? How do we decide what dharma is? The core philosophy at the heart of the Ramchandra series is what is an ideal society, correct? And again, the answers aren't simple. Sometimes you know, law and freedom are in conflict with each other, then what do you do? Sometimes law and justice are in conflict with each other, then what do you do? So there are pure philosophies at the heart of the books that I write. So the philosophies are step one, the stories are step two, because the stories are wrapper to convey those philosophies. So what I'm doing with the Immortal India book, the non-fiction book, is communicating step one to you directly, what are the philosophies that I think of. So because there are some people who read only non-fiction, some people who read only fiction, so that's why I've come out with this series. Thank you. Yes, sir, of course. Uh,
2: OK. Uh-huh. There are two questions. First sir. question is about uh, Someres, you mentioned, in the Immortals of Meluha. Was it fiction, or there was a real Someres? That's one of my first question. Second is, your m- book is supposed to be made into a movie. When is it going to come when out? When is that going to OK.
4: okay. Uh, the first question is on uh, Somras. Somras, as you uh, know in the book, is an anti-aging, uh, anti-aging drink. <coughs> um, did that exist in ancient India? The honest answer is I don't know. Um, but one of the problems with our education system is we don't research enough of our own ancient uh, uh, achievements. Uh, so, uh, so, therefore we know very little of our own ancient uh, past. So, uh, you know, I am sure there are many people who want to be doctors out here. But if you go to study medicine, you're, in India at least, you are not taught of Sushruta or Charak, you are taught straight of Hippocrates, Greek medicine men, etc. It's so the same with mathematics. I graduated in mathematics. We don't learn of Bodhayana ji or Bhaskaracharya ji. We learn of uh, Pythagoras or Euclid. So, we haven't done enough research in our own achievement. So, did we have this achievement? I don't know. But it could be, correct? But because we don't do enough research, we don't know. Um, having said that, the the explanation I've put for the Somras in uh, immortal of Meluva, Secret of the Nagas, Notat of the Vaiputras, is based on modern scientific texts. My father is a genetic research scientist. So, uh, there is… Uh, there is research going on. All of us, probably, and it's, it's a matter of 10-15 years now, before uh, a genuine genetic uh, uh, a cure or a pill or some system comes up to extend our lifespans dramatically. Many of us, especially the kids out here, you'll probably live till you're 150-160. Seriously, that research is not too far away. And my father's in this field, so we know. Question is what you'll do for that extra 70-80 years of your life. But we will probably live till 150-160 and one of the areas, one of the means of research, one of the methods of research that's happening in anti-aging is this concept of uh, antioxidants. Because one of the reasons why we age is the oxidants rust our body from the inside out. So we can control that through some genetic cure. Uh, then we could solve the problem of aging. There are various routes uh, that are being pursued for anti-aging. One is to control the the methylation rate, Uh, the other is antioxidant, there are various routes like this. Uh, So I've used one of those actual modern scientific theories in the story. As far as the movie is concerned, uh, there is a deal that is on. Uh, and we'll make an announcement uh, soon, in a, in a few months, and hopefully, you know, a movie or a series that is worthy of Lord Shiva will get made So,
0: Thank you. Hello sir. Hi. Uh,
2: so, do you try to be more original or to give what the readers want?
4: Good question. How many people want to be writers out here? Good numbers, yeah? Can anyone predict what readers will like? Does anyone have any idea? You know, the, that is the biggest problem in any creative space. No one can ever be sure. You know, my first book, Immortal of Melua was rejected by every publisher it was sent to. So every, I must have sent it to probably every publisher in India. So I stopped counting after 20 rejections. Uh, Finally, I self-published the first book. The reason... Thank you. The reason they were rejecting my book, because they said that this book will be a guaranteed flop. Because they said that, look, it's based on a religious subject. The main market are the youth. And they said the youth aren't interested in a religious subject. Okay, so they said this book is a guaranteed flop. What they told me is you should write some love story set in your I am Calcutta days. Because that will sell. Okay. Now, what were they doing? They were only seeing a you know a set of books which were selling earlier and telling the same formula to me. But I did what felt right to me and I didn't really know whether it would succeed or not. And that's the thing I always advise to writers: no one can predict what creative will work, what creative will not work. Whether it's a book or a movie or whatever. You know, so you should do what feels right to you. And I think one of the… I don't know him personally, but I always give his example. One of the best creative people to follow in terms of attitude to work is Amir Khan. If you think about Amir Khan, when he makes his movies, you know, he doesn't really… from what I know, he doesn't really think about whether that movie will succeed or not. He doesn't really think through uh, that much. He just does what feels right to him. But once a movie is made, then he thinks practically and pragmatically and figures out, okay, how do I market this? So any creative person should be that way. When you're… I'm not talking about specific movies. There are some movies I like, some movies I don't like, but I'm talking about the attitude that when you're writing, don't think at all about whether readers will like it or not. Once a book is finished, then become a practical, pragmatic marketing person and figure out how do I sell this, okay? But while writing, don't think at all. That's how I do. Thank you. there's a, there's I, a, oh. I have
5: two points, Yes, sir. one uh, as a sort of response for the question that she asked. I always feel that uh, writing is an expression from a deep inner call. In fact, the writer does not have a choice, you know, whether Spot he on. will write it or not write it, you know, he doesn't have a choice. He just expresses and answers that call, that is number one. Second, you have been touching the myths uh, in all your works so far. Now we are in the new age, you know, we are talking about uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence and all that. What will be the new age myths, sir? New age myths? Would you, would you be writing about that? Uh, why not, yeah? So, uh,
4: there is… Uh, you know, if you go to… Uh, if you go to Calcutta, yeah. see, what can… What will be the myths of this story of today's day, which will survive five hundred years later, who knows? You know, in Calcutta, there is a temple that has been made. Uh, and if you go out there, there is a family which has set it up for the pundits for that temple. And the idol in that temple is uh, Amitabh Bachchan. No, seriously. And uh, you, it's, it's an idol of Amitabh Bachchan out there. There are some people around there who pray to Amitabh Bachchan. Uh, there is an Amitab Chalisa which has been which has been <laughs> written, you know, and which is out there. And there are some people who believe that. Now uh, in I, I have studied in Tamil Nadu, I know out here Rajnikanth is God. Correct. Uh, what is that line? Innavalli.
5: Innavali.
4: Ah, correct, correct. Ah. Tanavali So vali Ya
5: Vali yeah,
4: wali, wali. Ah, yeah wali, tenna wali I remember I had seen I had seen Chandramukhi the first time. Uh, when I had seen it the first time, I had seen it in Tamil without subtitles. Okay, and I saw it the second time with subtitles. Whereas well, Rajnikan movie, you don't need the subtitles. You know, you can just you can just enjoy the flow. What will be the myths? What will be the myths of Rajnikan that will survive 500 years later? Who knows? Correct. For all you know, what if what if we actually have a nuclear war with Pakistan? 30 years later, say they. Pakistan finally gives in it to its insanity and starts a nuclear war, everything is destroyed. Okay? And civilization will start once again. And a thousand years later, say there's a myth of this thin, wiry little man who was a magician, who was, you know, who was divine in some way, used to wear small round glasses, used to walk with a lati, didn't look very strong and powerful, but one day he went to the beach, picked up some salt, threw it in the air, and destroyed the most powerful empire of the time, in those days. And they call this God Gandhi. Now, is it based on some actual truth? Yes. But things get adapted, and it becomes a myth five hundred, six hundred years later. The only way we'll know for sure, is if we are there five hundred years later. But myths always get generated. And it's societies which generate myths, in my mind, are actually tend to be more liberal and tend to be more alive. Because they are able to, to get into philosophies
5: and thoughts. Yeah. You know, the, the reason I ask this question, there is a tendency now towards you know, becoming a nuclear uh, family. Okay. And uh, we are all you know, uh, alienated in certain sense, okay, even though we talk about world as a global village and all that. Today, I don't have my grandmother to tell me stories or my uh, grandson will not have a a physical grandma telling stories uh, to him or to her, okay? So, one of the reasons we survived was through our word of mouth, uh, you know, joint families. So, if I become alienated, okay, where do I go for, myths? It's a very good question. For most of us, our stories used to come
4: from our parents and grandparents, right? That's how we heard most of our stories, right? And it's not there in the younger generation because most people live only with their parents. Very good point. But society tends to adapt because now there, is, there are books, there are television, there are movies. All of these will carry our myths forward. Uh, society will always adapt. There are my books, you can read my books. Right? Society will always adapt to keep our myths alive. The only, the thing that matters is not so much the medium. Thing that matters is the power and the beauty of the stories themselves. As long as we keep the power and the beauty of the stories alive, different mediums will keep emerging. If not your grandmother, then maybe a book. If not that, maybe a TV series. You know, like... Uh, <coughs> Uh, for example, okay, let me ask this how many How many people have heard of the story of Baji Rao Baji Rao Mastani? So many people have heard Was it there in your history books at all no right it 's not there in anyone 's it was Which history book was this okay my my applause for the CBSE syllabus, but so many great warriors of ours, their their myths have just been, you know, airbrushed aside. You know, sorry. Exactly, exactly. Very few know. I live in Maharashtra, that's what, Therefore, I knew. Correct. Uh, Rajendra Chola, who was such a, he was a, one of the greatest conquerors of the world. Again, I lived in Tamil Nadu, so I learned of him. But in our national history books, he's there just for two lines. Correct. So the history books have airbrushed Baji, Rao uh, Baji Rao's story aside. How did all of you get to know about Bajirao? There'll always be some way. There's… The, it's, but the power of Baji Rao's story is so strong that the medium does not matter. Some medium will come. The thing that matters is the power of the story. That's what I believe. Medium will come. Sorry, yes. Okay, his question is, did Dan Brown uh, inspire me to write uh, stories based on religion? Uh, I'm a big fan of Dan Brown, I don't uh, deny that. I think he writes brilliantly, his research is fantastic. But I'm inspired by India and by uh, the wonderful stories and philosophies of our way of life. And I genuinely think that it's important that we revive our… so many of the myths and stories of our ancient culture because there are good positive messages in our ancient past. Like, like if we, all of us who fight for, uh, say we want the equality between men and women. They shouldn't, we shouldn't go to the western extreme where men are being demonized. Not all men are monsters. Many of us are decent, decent people. But all of us who fight for the equality of men and women, you know, there are two ways to fight that approach. Either we can quote some American or British uh, people and then get accused of westernization. Or we can, accu- we can quote our own ancient stories and have a positive impact with that, that we can tell people that by fighting for women's rights, you're not being westernized, in fact, you're being truly Indian. And so many other examples like this, we can quote our own stories to have a positive social impact. That's what inspires me. Thank you. Yes. Hello,
5: sir. Hello, sir.
4: Uh, In reference to a book, uh, where Mm there are two types of people, that is the Asuras and the Devas, Uh, the Asuras follows the feminine part, whereas the Devas follows the masculine… masculine, that is the… they follow the… The other way around, Asuras follow… follow masculine, Devas follow feminine. Okay, so is India immortal because of those two? Which is… which does India follow, masculine or feminine part? What do you think? I think… Let me clarify first, masculine, feminine has nothing to do with men and women? Yeah, definitely. It just follows the, the path they follow. So, yeah. according to me, we are in a mix of both masculine and female because we think peace is more important. Mm. But at the same time, if somebody disturbs us, we are not ready to… we are ready to fight back. Mm. So, I suppose that India fights, we both follow both the paths, masculine and the feminine part.
5: Right.
4: So, is India immortal because of what? Feminine or masculine? Are all societies, their… the path they follow, it keeps adapting. Even for us individually. There were times when India was a masculine society, there are times when it's been a feminine society. And I should explain the philosophy. It has nothing to do with men and women. Being masculine does not mean that you are manly or feminine, that you are like a woman. No, the difference is a masculine way of life is when you follow a life of laws, a life of compliance, a life of, uh, uh, you know, following the rules, like Lord Ram. That's a masculine way of life. A feminine way of life is when you are driven by freedom, when you are driven by passion, uh, uh, when… even if you follow laws, you are flexible about it, like the path of Lord Krishna. That's a feminine way of life. Okay? Following the brain, following the heart could be one way of looking at it. If you look at it from this perspective, then which path do you think Indians follow today? Do we follow the laws? Do we? No, right? Let me… let me quote an example to you, okay? This is… because there are countries which are… which follow the masculine path more, like Japan for example, China to an extent, Germany, yes, America is closer to our way of life. So, let me give you an example from China. Everyone knows China had an Olympics, right, recently? Where was it held? (coughs) Beijing? Chinese Olympics was held in Beijing. Right? Yeah? So, that was a few years ago and India also had the Commonwealth Games. Right? Few years back. Now, China being China, the stadiums at the Beijing Olympics were ready six months before the launch of the Olympics itself. It was China. Correct? Everything, get it moving, get it done. In India, I think the commonwealth games, they were still painting the stadiums while the games had started, correct? But for, the, for China, just having the stadiums ready and the volunteers trained was not good enough. The Chinese wanted the Beijing citizens to also be impressive to foreigners. Okay? And I'm not joking, the Chinese government had actually, Beijing government had actually done this. They'd come out with a code of guideline for Beijing citizens, ordinary citizens, with a guideline for ordinary Beijing citizens. What are the guidelines like? You know that uh, few English phrases that you should learn, how long your handshake should be. They'd apparently advise that your handshake should be three seconds long. Because less than that is not friendly. More than that is creepy, okay? So three seconds, three seconds handshake. They had come out with a dress guideline also, okay? So the… they had told that the men had… couldn't match white socks with black shoes for whatever reason, God knows, okay? (laughs) Women the length of the skirt was specified depending on the age of the woman, okay? They'd come out with these guidelines. Now. You know what the Chinese culture is like. When the Beijing government came out with this guideline, what do you think the Beijing citizens did? They followed the guideline. Imagine if the Indian government had come out with a guideline like this in Delhi, what do you think would have happened? We would have said, you told me not to wear white socks and black shoes, I will wear only this for one year. Barbezao! We are that way. We are rebellious people. That is the way we are. So what I always advise, because there are so many people who tell us we should be like China. We cannot be like China. We are not like them. We are a rebellious, passionate people, freedom-loving people. So we should be true to who we are. Because there are strengths of rebellious, passionate, fun-loving people also. Because rebellious, passionate, fun-loving people are very creative, are very innovative. And innovation is the, is the biggest source of wealth creation. Correct. China, a compliant society can never be innovative. So let's not try to be like the Chinese, let's be true to who we are. At this point of time, we are a feminine society. What we will be hundred years later, I don't know. But at this point of time, we are a feminine society, we should be true to who we are. But I always advise that we should have a bit of balance, we can learn some things from Lord Ram, that at least sometimes we should try to follow the rules. Uh, because many of us Indians, we, we, just, we get some pleasure in breaking rules. And that creates a lot of chaos in society. Let's try and follow rules a little bit. But let's be true to our freedom, loving, passionate way of life. That's who we are. Sorry? No, no, no. We are not. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't yeah. think so. We are we are in many ways adapting to things that are required in the modern world, but we are keeping our old thing as well. So I won't call us pre modern, I would call us adaptable. You know, our… the reason for our uh, failure post-1947, economic failure till 1991, was not that our people didn't have the talent. The systems that had been set up, the economic policies that were followed, were suppressing the natural talent of Indians. 1991 when we liberalized, the natural talent ensured that we started prospering. So, we have natural talent in India, we should just give it… leave it free. Thank you, Amish
6: here. The front row. Right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, for this wonderful
4: how
6: many session. more questions? last? One. Okay. okay. Uh, my name is Sivakumar Hi. My question is, uh, Tamil Nadu being a state that's been largely rationalized for last couple of decades for various political reasons. How do we still keep our culture relevant and immortal in the coming uh, decades in the future? Especially young minds like uh, these students who've been uh, trained to think, ask a lot of uh, rational questions which might really uh, argue against our mythological beliefs and our culture?
4: I can't say I know Tamil culture so deeply to answer that as completely in a way that will help you, but let me… let me try and address that in some ways. <clears throat> One of the things that I have learned uh, is because we are essentially a freedom-loving, rebellious society, we must have respect for the local culture and the national culture. That's the only way that our society will find cohesion and strength. So, uh, and that is something that's important, that's something that I believe in. That <coughs> there must be, you know, uh, and a repository of the local culture is often the local language, correct? So, uh, uh, all of us respect our mothers, you know, and um, your mother language is like your mother, your mother tongue. But we must respect the mothers of others as well. Correct? So, that for me is an important balance that must be struck. But in terms of rationalism and atheism, I want to put that point across that there's nothing wrong with atheism. And in fact, it is a part of the Indian way of life. There were nine major schools of uh, Indian philosophy uh, in ancient India. Three of them were actually atheists, they didn't believe in a Creator God. The Charvaks didn't believe in a Creator God. The Bodh and Jain school of philosophy also don't believe in the Creator God. Uh, In fact, even the Sankhya's and Mimamsa's by the modern paradigm, you would call them atheists because they believed in the Vedas but they didn't believe in a Creator God, correct? So in the Indian way, there's nothing wrong with being an atheist. You can still be an atheist and be an Indian. Uh, and be proudly true to this culture. What is important though is that you don't judge others. An atheist must not judge someone who has faith. And someone who has faith should not judge someone who is atheist. That is the Indian way. You know, in, our, in Vedic Sanskrit, for example, there is no translation for the English word judgment. You know, when you judge that you are right, you are wrong, you'll go to heaven, you'll go to hell. That that word did not exist. There is no translation in Vedic Sanskrit for the English word blasphemy also. You know blasphemy when you insult insult God, which is considered a big crime, there is no translation for that word either. Because the concepts didn't exist, so the words didn't exist. So, if we can revive that thought that having faith does not mean that you give up your questioning spirit, then there is no problem reconciling atheism and faith because you respect each other's way of life. And this is what our ancient Indians taught us. So we can learn that from them. And being an atheist does not in any way make you less Indian. That's the point I want to say. But an atheist must not judge those who are faithful. And vice versa as well. There should be no judgment. Yeah? Yes sir? Oh, when we are talking about our ancient stories helping us grow and get together, isn't the time right to call our ancient stories history than mythology? The like Gram, Krishna, they, told, hmm. they are all told as mythologies.
0: Hmm.
4: Aren't they stories? Aren't they histories? Good question. Let me answer this from… Let me answer this from two perspectives. One is, uh, there is a western paradigm that we have imported which gives history a higher status than mythology, which I don't understand why. Why should we give history a higher status than mythology? Because one of the things our ancients taught us is that the only subject which can claim absolute truth is mathematics. No other subject can claim absolute truth. No other subject. Not even physics. Even today modern theoretical physicists are realizing that actually the truth of what we see in the standard model of the universe depends on us as an observer. There is no absolute truth in any subject in mathematics, except mathematics. Mythology has the maturity to accept that I don't know absolute truth. History has the immaturity to think that it knows absolute truth. When the reality is, neither know absolute truth. Nobody knows the absolute truth. So that is one thing that we have to understand, that it's not that mythology is lower than history. Why? In fact, in most ancient cultures, mythology was given a higher status. Our Puranas have history as well, all our Puranas. But that is just a recording of facts. Mythology is what teaches you philosophy. It teaches you the art of learning how to live. It is more important in the Indian way. Though we won't use the word mythology, we could use Adi Kavya, we could use some other terms for it. So that's one thought I want to leave with you. But another thought that I want to leave with you is, I certainly think our history books need to be re-researched and re That is certainly true. There's a… one of the problems in our history books, in my mind, is there's too much of a Delhi and Northwest India bias in our history books. And I've said this in Delhi as well, you know, and I have respect for Delhi and Northwest India, but they weren't the only parts of India. There are other parts of India too. And they don't get enough prominence and because of that, we don't learn enough of our own history. So we don't learn lessons from our history. Like one of the things that we are taught is that the British conquered India from the Mughals. Which is not true. The British actually conquered India from the Maratha empire. Correct? But we don't learn anything about the Marathas. If you… what the naval history that's taught to us… We are taught that navies came with the… with the Europeans. Which is not true. We had navies in ancient India. The Tamils had a huge navy. The Kalingas had a huge navy. The Marathas had a huge navy. We had navies going back. Many centuries, many millennia, but we don't learn that, correct? The, uh, the Cholas are reduced to a… you know, to just a few lines in our history books. The Maratha Empire is reduced to just a few lines. The Gurjar Pratiharas, the Hoysalas, the Palas of Bengal, the, the Bhojas of Madhya Pradesh, UP. Uh, they were great empires, the Senas, Vijayanagar… Vijayanagar couldn't be ignored because it was too uh, important, but even that is only half a chapter we don't learn enough of all of the Indian subcontinent. So we don't get a complete understanding of our history. Like so many of us, we read our history books and we think we were always a uh, land-based, you know, civilization. Which is not true. We were actually the greatest traders of of the ancient world. But because we don't teach any of our great trading civilizations, we don't get that understanding in history. Ha- have you guys ever considered this that all the invasions in, that happened in the last thousand years in India, all the invaders always came from northwest India? Have you guys noticed this? Everyone's noticed this? All invaders came from northwest India? How come no one came from northeast India? Has this question ever been raised in our mind? How come they never came from. There are passes in northeast India as well, they could come from there too. And remember, the Turkic invaders were Central Asians, Turkic Mongols. So they could have come from northwest. They could have come from northeast also. They conquered China. Why didn't they come from northeast India? Sorry. One of the reasons they didn't come from northeast India is because there was a kingdom out there called the Ahom kingdom. And they, used, what what is Assam today? They used to defeat every invader. They are the longest ruling dynasty in india some 700 years in the northwest the guardians of our northwest were the pathans who are individually very brave and we are taught that they are brave but collectively they used to keep losing every battle any invader who came used to defeat them and then enter india but any invader who had to come from northeast india had to defeat the ahoms and the ahoms would defeat every single invader so none of them could get through into india has anyone heard of the ahoms out here anyone raise their hands anyone had heard of the homes only one person only three people that's so sad we we know nothing about them and this is so we are not getting a complete understanding of our entire history so that our history books certainly need to be rewritten i don't deny that but don't make the i would suggest we shouldn't think that history is in any way superior to mythology it's not yes sir my name is Bala Jiravi, and I'm doing my EC, uh, BE ECE at Ramakrishna Engineering College. So, I just have a few questions, which is in general, it's a general question actually, which has been in my mind for almost six months. Shall I? Um, we know that your books are all been, uh, always been a mythical one. We all know that. But if Mr. Amesh Tripathi was to write an autobiography, will he take it up with confidence or will he estate it? Because we all know that we are… Uh, we all have our own secrets. So, what's your point of view? No, I, my life isn't interesting enough to write a biography, so… I don't think I'm ever going to write a biography. <laughs> okay. I, I lead a if, boring life here. If, if, if you are so, will you write it? No. no, I, no. My life is not interesting enough oh. for an autobiography. Oh, okay. It's a very boring life. <laughs> Sir, uh, my name is Surya. Yeah, doing hi. My... Hi, Surya doing my ba english literature okay sir i have a question it's a general question uh, share one of your uh, best experience and what have you learned from that incident in particular as indians we generally do it and one more thing is that what advice a single word advice that you would like to give to the audience especially the youths which they have to follow um. One one very good experience was uh, I was at a Lit Fest, and two incidents happened at the same time at that Lit Fest. I think it was in Bangalore, if I'm not mistaken. So there was a line to get you know autographs on my book, and there were uh, there was a very old couple uh, in there. They looked like they were 80 plus. So you know one of my publishers saw them, so they immediately just brought them up. They didn't want them to wait in line. So uh, and they the they were just intrigued. They said that who is this author whose books have got my grandkids interested in Lord Ram and Lord Shiva, so he wanted to get your autograph and they blessed me and it was it was a very sweet uh, interaction. And immediately after that, I had a teenager uh, guy who came for my autograph and uh, you know, uh, he was wearing a t-shirt and you know, earrings, all that and and he said, you know, before I used to think uh, Lord Shiva was my grandmother's God now I think he's the dude of the gods. <laughs> in terms of uh, suggestions to the youth, I think one thing I would say is, you live in a wonderful time to be an Indian. You know, I am forty-three. The, the time that I was growing up in, there were very few opportunities, you know. Uh, so, I was always very passionate about history, but. It was not really a wise career option, you know, in those days. I am talking about early nineties, when I was making my career decisions. So there were very few options. You either did engineering or medicine or MBA or CA or you starved basically. These are the only few options that were there. But today, you know, the entire world is an oyster for uh, the youth today. You can pick whatever career field you want. If you are good at it, you will make money, you will do well. So. Uh, The only thing that I would suggest is dare to dream, man. You know, you live in a wonderful time to be an Indian. Dare to dream, but there is no substitute for hard work. You want to achieve your dream, you have to work hard. But choose whatever path you want to follow. In India, there are enough and more opportunities now. A wonderful time to be an Indian. Wonderful time. Thank you. He's asking me on my next book, uh, which is going to be based on uh, Ravan, and that's his uh, question. And you know, uh, the perspective with which Ravan is seen today, often, uh, in India, at least in urban India, is actually based on a 1980s television serial. (coughs) And uh, that is not… it's not nuanced, sees it very simplistically. Whereas the Valmiki Ramayana actually had a very nuanced approach to Ravan. I know the Kamban Ramayana also has a nuanced approach uh, to Ravan. And uh, uh, in fact, there are, there are temples in North India dedicated to, to Ravan. In Kanpur for example, one of the oldest Ravan temple is actually in uh, Kanpur. But the people who worship him worship Lord Ram as well. you know. Uh, So there is a, perhaps a need for a nuanced take on him. And one of the things that we can learn from Ravan is that he was of course very talented. He was a brilliant intellectual, a brilliant warrior, he had the blessings of Lord Shiva. But his problem was his ego. He had no control over his ego. And one of the things that we can learn from Ravan is no matter how talented you are, if you can't control your ego, you will suffer. That's one of the things we can learn from Ravan, learn to control your ego.
1: Uh, Sir, it's about like your thought process before writing your book because all… you describe the ancient city very well, like from the formations, the war formations to the architecture of the city. Uh, What was your thought process before writing this book or what inspired you? What was your reference before like you started to design the entire city?
4: You know what… what I do is, uh, I… I read a lot and I travel a great deal. And my thing is whenever I am travelling, I try and learn as much as I can and I read a lot. (coughs) Excuse me. So, my rough rule of ratio is for every page that I read, uh, that I write, I read at least a hundred pages. So, uh, so all that knowledge goes somewhere in the back of the mind. But how it emerges into a story is up to Lord Shiva. So that I don't control. But my task is to learn as much as I can. Uh, So it's like if you want to cook a, you know, you want to cook a dish. You want to cook a pum and stew, for example. You need the ingredients for it, no? You need coconut milk, you need various things. Unless you have the ingredients, how can you put the meal together? But just having the ingredients doesn't mean that you can cook the meal well. So, uh, so learning is buying the ingredients in a way. How it comes together in the story is up to Lord Shiva, There he does. Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you.
5: Hello, sir. Hi. Ah, hi. So, um, I have two questions. The first one is, how do you uh, balance your writing life with your marketing and promotion life? And your second question is, uh, uh, in, at the end of the third book, you've talked about writing about the Mahabharat, but then you moved on to the Ramayana. So uh, can we expect a book about the Mahabharat anytime soon? Okay. Uh,
4: how do I differentiate it? I work in two phases, so there's a marketing phase and there's a writing phase. In the marketing phase, I try to be a little more sociable, friendly. I do interviews, I do events. In the writing phase, I tend to just cut off. So I'll be going into the writing phase very soon. Uh, So then I just tend to to cut off. I'd like to keep them uh, separate. And in terms of uh, the next book, yes, a Mahabharat series will come uh, as well. (coughs) So uh, in fact, I have… yeah, but the Ramchandra series is five books. In fact, I've left clues for all the books that I will write over the next twenty, twenty-five years, I've left clues for them in the Shiva trilogy. So after the Ramchandra series, I'll have the Mahabharat series. After that, I might have my version of Lord Rudra, Lady Moini's story. After that, I might have my version of Lord Parashuram's story. After that, I might have my Lord… my version of Lord Manu's story, Uh, which by the way is based in the land of uh, Tamil Sangam… Sangam Tamil, sorry. The ancient, ancient civilization, uh, more than twelve thousand years. So, and I've left clues for all these stories in the Shiva trilogy. So, the next 20-25 years, whatever I'm going to write, you can… you can read the Shiva trilogy and see the clues. Yes. Hello
1: sir, I'm Kripa and I'm a… Can we…
4: Uh, sorry, sorry, just one request, can we end it with this and the next question? Huh?
3: Okay. Uh, yeah uh, so I'm actually here on request to all my friends uh, who are also readers of Shiva trilogy, ever since the news of the a movie, uh, movie coming up came up. Uh, we, we all were also Percy Jackson fan, uh, fans okay. and after watching the movie our first thought was Annabeth is brunette not blonde. So our request, a group of people actually, is please take care of the casting because you've portrayed Shiva and Sati in such a beautiful way. I don't think we'll accept even Mohit Rehna and… Uh, What Maoni Roy in the TV series, I don't think even we'll accept that because… Vohit Rehna
4: was quite good, yeah? He
3: was good, (laughs) but not as good as your description. We loved (laughs) Shiva and Sati that way and… So it is a
1: request, please uh, take care of the uh, casting too. I'll
4: bear that in mind. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Can I? Yeah, yeah, please.
1: Sir, first I should uh, mention here that my mom is a big fan of yours. Sorry, can't
4: hear you clearly. Can you just hold it close? Huh.
1: My mom, she's a big fan of yours. She has you. actually read the Malayalam books actually and she's oh, okay. a huge fan. Thank she you. has a question for you. Are you planning to write about uh, Lord Vishnu too? Uh, do you have any plans?
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, my stories are based more on the uh, what could be called the avatars of Lord Vishnu. So, there is of course Lord Ram. Okay, uh, now and I will be writing a story on Lord Parshuram uh, as well, uh, which actually has a lot to do with Kerala. So even the Ramchandra series, which is why you will notice that uh, the Malayaputras, Putras, the tribe left behind by Lord Parshuram yes. are actually based in Kerala, in Nagaste Kodam. So, uh, uh, so, I will write, uh, I'll write that and story. And one ago.
1: more question, sir. How do you uh, beautifully combine technology and uh, religion, myth both together in uh, Nagas actually? the nuclear technologies and all that and so on. How do you do that, sir? I, uh,
4: <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just read a lot, but how it combines together is up to Lord Shiva. I'll be honest, I, I, I still don't know how the stories flow. Uh, I just open the laptop and there's this uh, parallel universe that opens up, honestly. And uh, before Immortals of Melua, I'd written absolutely no fiction ever in my life, absolutely nothing. No short story in school, nothing. So, uh, I genuinely believe my stories are the blessings of Lord Shiva and I'm just a channel, you know, lucky recipient of his blessings. So he's the one who combines it, the credit should go to him. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you for your patience in answering. Thank you for making us understand why India is immortal. Mahatma Gandhi said that his love for India increased a thousand-fold after reading Swami Vivekananda. Listening to you has had a similar effect on all of us, and we understand our responsibility to make India immortal. Thank you, sir. And I am very excited uh, to announce that Amirji has kindly agreed to sign your copies after the program, and the readers do not need to rush. He's going to be with us for more time. Amirji's book in English and Tamil are available outside this auditorium. Westland Books and Odyssey have been kind enough to set up a stall here for the benefit of our young readers who might wish to purchase a copy of his books. Thank you. The Indic Book Club has been inviting authors like Amirji to Coimbatore and providing an opportunity for the book lovers in the city to interact with them. I now request Mr. Pramo Kumar coordinator of the Indic Book Club to please share information about the Indic Book Club and deliver the vote of thanks. Thank
4: you. Sorry sorry, Pramod, just just one thing, I'm so sorry, I forgot to say one thing because I just saw the two lovely girls out here and at the back, the chant that they did was so beautiful, so if you all can just stand up and applaud for them. I was so touched by what they did, it's brilliant.
6: Namaste, vankam. Before we conclude today's program, with the vote of thanks and the national anthem, I'll just take a minute to introduce the Indic Book Club to all of you. I'm sure that you'll look forward to meeting such authors in the future also. Indic Book Club is an association of thinkers who seek to preserve, protect and promote Indic civilizational identity thought and values while contributing to nation building both economically and culturally. Indic Book Club provides a platform for promoting Indian authors by organizing book launch programs for their new releases in various cities in India. We have 19 chapters today, 9 Indian cities and 8 outside India. The IBC Coimbatore chapter has had the privilege of launching the books of eminent authors like Sri Sanjeev Sanyal, author of The Ocean of Churn, who became uh, the principal economic advisor to GOI. In fact, I wanted to mention this uh, to Amish since yesterday, that the Coimbatore chapter has had a good luck charm on all the authors who've come here and spoken here. Sanjeev Ji became the principal economic advisor soon after he spoke at the IBC Coimbatore chapter. Hindul Sen Gupta, uh, after his book on Vivekananda, he came and spoke here. He got a global award in journalism. So I'm hoping that I'm praying that Immortal India, sir, will take you to new heights after you've spoken here at the Coimbatore chapter. Those of you uh, who wish to join the Indic Book Club, please send your contact info to ibccoimbatore@gmail.com. at gmail.com. IBC stands for Indic Book Club, Coimbatur at gmail.com. Over to the vote of thanks, this Sundara Kanda of the Ramayana says, esham dharma To repay a good deed with another, this is the essence of Sanatana Dharma. Expressing gratitude is a fundamental value of Indian culture. An event of this magnitude involves the team effort of many individuals and institutions working in harmony. Let us acknowledge their contributions. Our profound thanks to the SNR Sons Trust for their wholehearted collaboration with the Indic Book Club in making this event possible, particularly to Mrs. Swati Rohit, Chief Business Officer, Mr. Uma Maheshwaran, P.R.O. of the SNR's Trust, who have taken care of every detail and really made our task simple. Our thanks also to all the students and faculty members of the Ramakrishna group of institutions for your participation in large numbers despite the model exams going on for you. My thanks also to the students and teachers of various educational institutions who have come here to listen to Amishji, Perks Matriculation School, Ruby Matriculation School, Chinmay Vidyalias, PSGR Krishnamal College and a host of others whose presence or whose names I may not be aware of but please do feel acknowledged that we are grateful to you. My thanks to all my friends and associates of the Indic Book Club Coimbatore chapter, particularly to Mr. Jagannathan and Mr. Ram Gopal and Mr. Rajesh Govindrajulu. without whose help I would not have been able to organize this event. My sincere thanks also to Westland Books and Odyssey for making Amishji's books available here at short notice. I'm sure that all of you will make them feel amply rewarded for this effort by picking up your own personal copies on the way back. My sincere gratitude also to all the media persons present here for covering this event and we also eagerly look forward to your support and cooperation for future events of IBC2. Nandri Vanakkar.
1: Thank you, sir. All's well that ends well. We have now come to the end of today's program. Let us rise to sing the national anthem to show our respect for immortal India, a sacred motherland.
7: Janaganamana atinayaka mana atinayak jayati bharat sindh gujarat maratha ganga Chana chana ti dharanga Tava shubana me jahe Tava shubha shishamahe Jahe tava jaya janagana mangala mangal daayaka jaya Bye.